Hello, and welcome back to Pod Save My 20s. I'm Gabrielle. And I'm Tara. And we have a guest here with us today. My good friend Danny is joining us this week for our conversation about mental health in your 20s. And Danny's here to give an expert perspective on this topic. He's making a face at me right now, but in my mind, he is an expert in this realm more than I am. And this is going to be an ongoing series. So definitely stay tuned for more episodes. But to start off, Danny, welcome. We'd love it if you could introduce yourself to our listeners before we dive in. Yeah. Hi, my name's Danny. I use he, his, and pronouns. And lately I've been thinking a lot about how I introduce myself and I've lately been doing it through my identity. So uh, I am a queer man. I identify as gay, uh, that's a big part of my life. I am mixed. I identify as Chicano. My mom is Mexican-American. My dad is real white, born and raised in Michigan. Michigan's also a big part of my identity. I uh, have a tattoo of the state of Michigan. I wear a Michigan necklace and I'm a big Gretchen Whitmer fan. Other than those things, I currently live in Boston, Massachusetts. I work at MIT. I'm also a student at Boston University School of Social Work, and I am excited to be here with you. Thank you for inviting me. Of course, and we're excited to have you here, so thank you for joining us. Yeah, and to start off every episode, we each share a moment of truth from our week. I don't know if Tara explained this to you beforehand, probably, but um, so it's really anything, <laughs> anything you want it to be, just channel the most like in your 20s moment that you had this past week. And it, you can take a minute to think about it. We won't make you go first, just to <laughs> throw you to the wolves there. Um, so yeah, we'll give you some time to think. I can kind of go first because I actually think I have a good one for this week and it kind of just came back up today. So this actually kind of started, I guess, a couple months ago or a month ago. I found out that, so when you turn 26, you are no longer able to be on your parents' health insurance, correct? So I was under the impression that I had until my 26th birthday, but then I found out last month that that's not true, at least for my provider. They're kicking me off January 1st of 2021. So, and I had just missed open enrollment for my job. Um, and the other thing is I'm a temporary worker, so I don't have, like, I don't get benefits with my job. And um, I had been kind of relying on my parents' health insurance until this time and probably until the end of my job. And I was really worried about it, but there's actually a bunch of different forms that I have to fill out. So I just started looking at them and it's, it's a little overwhelming for me uh, and everything. And I'm actually not even sure how much I still have to pay yet because I don't get, I do qualify since I've been working there for over a year in this temporary position, but it's still not full coverage. So I have to figure out like how much I make and how much they're going to provide monthly month to month for me and then how much I have to pay on top of that so it's just this whole process of yeah getting health insurance for the first time and adding on to my monthly budget and stuff and it's just it's yeah it's a it's a real kind of like moment of oh yeah I'm in my 20s and I have more bills to pay so that was my moment of truth for this week and yeah Danny do you feel ready to share one or do you yeah okay great yeah I'm happy to go so actually you kind of inspired me I think as you navigate your 20s, of course, you're figuring out how finances work because no one really teaches you, right? And after a couple years of uh, building up some good old credit card debt, I was going through uh, my finances and everything. And I was like, oh, wow, I'll actually possibly be able to pay off these credit cards before I'm 30. Keeping in mind, I'm 27. Uh, I feel like that's that's like the most 20s you can be in, right? This idea of, oh, in the next three years, I might be able to pay these down. And on one hand, it's this moment of like, oh, cool. But on the other hand, it's like, well, how stressful is that going to be to make sure that I can do that, right? So yeah, definitely figuring out how do you kind of build your way out of your 20s? The financial pieces are so relatable. I'm not going to talk about a financial thing at all, but like I relate to both of your experiences and definitely won't be out of the debt that I've accumulated when I by the time I turn 30, uh, particularly because I'm like planning on going back to school. So just putting myself in more debt. However, my moment of truth this week is so actually a week ago today, we launched the podcast and it was really exciting and fun and um, gratifying to like see the work that we put into this like come to life. 
And today we launched our like next episode and it was a lot quieter of a launch than like our initial launch. And, you know, I think that was still okay, but I was sort of expecting like the same fanfare as our our initial launch. And I had to like adjust my expectations and realize that it's like, okay, if that doesn't happen um, and that it's a process and, um, you know, the more consistent we are, the better this is going to be. And we know that people are listening and that this is like a content area that is um, exciting and interesting and like needed right now. So I think, you know, just having that like going through that experience was a good reminder for me that it's not like, it's not about the recognition um, or the likes or anything. Like you get caught in the social media, you know, cycle. And so um, it was good for me to, to quickly like get out of that and not think about that as what success looks like for this podcast. So yeah, that was my moment of truth that happened today. And yeah, I've just been really looking forward to this episode. So I'm excited to to keep going. Gabrielle, do you want to start us off? Yeah, same. I'm really excited. And I think I hear what you're saying. I was also kind of feeling that earlier when I was like, you know, sharing things on Instagram and stuff. And I was like, you know, we need to go back and listen to our first episode when we were like, remember why we started. And it's for these conversations that we're having right now. And so getting back into it and interviewing you today, Danny, is really exciting and what I'm living for right now. All right. So Danny, do you want to tell us a little bit about or a lot about yourself and how you got into the work that you do? Yeah. So uh, as a kid, I have always, when I was a kid, I loved learning about different cultures, different countries, different parts of the world. I remember watching the Olympic Games with my family. I remember watching international beauty pageants um, and just this idea that people came from different places and different types of communities and cultures was something that really fascinated me. My initial dream was actually to go into diplomacy. Uh, looking back, I was so naive, right? I was like, oh, it's relationship building, which I mean, it is, but also it's, okay, you have to follow what your administration tells you to do, right? And you have to keep the peace and you're not quite an activist in that type of role. But at that point I was like, yeah, that's what I wanna do. And then uh, I started at Michigan State uh, where I went to undergrad. I was a student at James Madison College, which is a unique little residential college that uh, really focuses on a holistic and a multidisciplinary approach to public affairs. And there was a corner of the college that really focused not only on international relations, but political anthropology. So I was like, yeah, I'll go international relations. I'll add that political anthro on the side. It was comparative cultures and politics. And I was like, yeah, those classes will be fun. I did not realize that those classes would primarily steal my heart, right? So they really helped me think about what is identity? How and where does identity come from? What's national identity, but also what is gender, right? What impact does gender have on ethnic conflicts around the world? So I was studying that in class. And then I was also a student leader. I was in our student government and a peer of mine came up to me. His name was Aaron. I knew he was a part of the Jewish community there at Michigan State. And he was like, Danny, I want to take you out to coffee. And I was like, Aaron, I have a boyfriend. And he's like, no, 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 it's just coffee. And I was like, no, 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 Aaron, I have a boyfriend. And he was like, okay, fine. It's for this internship that I'm doing. And as a part of the internship, I have to get to know our campus and our campus leaders. And I was like, okay, fine. Just don't tell my boyfriend. So I went to coffee with him and he was talking and talking and he started to talk about birthright. And at that point I was giving up my nap time. I remember being like, oh, how can I get him to stop talking? And at one point I was like, well, I wish I could go on a free trip to Israel. And then he was like, well, you can. I was like, what? So he invited me to apply for this trip for Jewish and non-Jewish students to go to Israel and the West Bank together. And I was like, you know, they probably won't pick me, but I'll apply anyway, because why not? So I applied and then I got interviewed and I told my mom, my mom was like, you're not going anywhere. You're crazy. But ultimately they ended up accepting me. So I went on this trip. I kind of went in expecting them to brainwash me. Right. So I was like, you know, they're going to tell me things and it's going to be up to me. Either it is going to go in one ear and out the other, 
or I can like be rude, what I would call rude at that age and really push back, right? I was very fortunate and very blessed to realize very quickly on this trip that had student leaders from campuses, including NYU and a number of University of California campuses. But I realized that the other student leaders I was with were gonna push these speakers not only as hard, but probably harder than I would. So immediately I realized that this was the type of conversation where we were expected to push what we were learning. Uh, to challenge the narratives that we were hearing, to put together diverse narratives, and to be able to process and reflect on those as a community and as a, as a group of students, right? And as a group of future community leaders. So I stayed involved with that organization. Uh, they had this philosophy around peace building that really focused on the personal relationship. So it was the idea that by building a personal relationship, by building a relationship based on vulnerability and respect and perspective taking, that you can really have real conversations. You can push each other, you can admit to your faults, you can admit to what you care about, you can share how and why you care about something. And I really fell in love with that model of social change. It was new to me. And I really wanted to figure out a way to adapt that to the communities I was a part of, communities that I saw as my own, but that I was not too active in. So uh, when I graduated, I was, of course, looking for a job, and they actually hired me to take over their work in a number of schools across New York, New Jersey, as well as Nashville. So a shout out to all my campuses and students there, Vanderbilt, NYU, Baruch Hunter, Brooklyn, Queens, Rutgers, Princeton, they're all great. So for two years, I managed our work on those campuses. So I helped uh, Jewish students build relationships with non-Jewish communities on campus, whether that was LGBTQ student communities or Muslim student communities or business groups or anything else like that, right? So while I was doing that, I was also leading trips to Israel for these students, the exact same trip I went on as a student that really changed my life. And then I got promoted and began to manage half of our team and the nonprofit's programmatic side. All of that being said, I was the small Midwestern boy who was on an airplane two or three times a week living out of my suitcase. I was traveling to conferences and meeting with people like Tara and it was this amazing dream of a job where you are seeing the world and really making a difference, but burnout is real. And I started to get really tired and I started to really question what I was doing and who I was working with and how I was quote unquote playing the nonprofit game. I think the nonprofit industrial complex is real and I'm happy to talk more about that. But all of those things are important, but I think the real kicker for me came in the fact that I've always known that my dream in life is to be a husband and to be a father. And I realized that I would be sad when I was leaving on a work trip because I was like, well, I'm not going to date or get to know anyone in my city for another three weeks. Or when I was in an airport on my way home, I'd be like, well, I'm going home to my lonely apartment. So in all of these processes, I actually ended up moving to New York City for a little bit. Our team was based in Boston where I was living at the time. Half of the team went to Washington, DC. The other half went to New York City. And literally two months before I moved, I met someone in Boston. So at the same time that I was burning out, I had really fallen in love with this really amazing guy. He was from Boston. He had just invested in a home there. And he was like, okay, I'm ready for you to move back. And I was like, I'm not moving for a man, but I'll move for a job. Uh, so at one point he was sending me like 10 or 15 job postings. And one of them was uh, for a student engagement position at MIT Center for Public Service. So I applied and I ended up getting the position. It's been an amazing experience focusing not only on student engagement, but social justice workshops and trainings on our general outreach strategies. So all of that happened. And then my life really fell apart. I moved in with this man that I loved. And then after a couple months, it just wasn't really healthy. I, I started to see reactions in myself that I did not love and I knew I needed to make some changes. So I moved out of his house in about two or three days and I completely zeroed out my savings. I had to get a new apartment. Uh, I'm so very fortunate that my parents were able to support me and, and kind of help me out of that hole as, as difficult as that process is, right? To go from being independent and self-reliant to being like, mom, dad, like I need you. They did not bad an eye. They were there unconditionally 
which I will always be thankful for. But yeah, I just kind of built my life out of there. And at the same time, I began to ask myself, how can I make sure this never happens to me again? Uh, and one way was to uh, get a position that I would have more flexibility in, that I could kind of build a career in, and ideally to have a side gig as well, right? Something that can make money that I could choose to either work more or work less while still being a licensed professional. At the same time, I really realized how important social justice was to me. Also, I'm sorry, I'm talking and talking and talking. Is that okay? <laughs> okay, cool. Um, so I realized how important social justice was to me. I realized how important the questions that I had about nonprofits and the nonprofit industrial complex and its interaction with social justice were all very important to me. And my ex actually really opened my eyes to social. And I initially was like, I, I don't even know what social work is. And I feel like most people in the world don't really know what social work is. Um, I was like, I don't, I don't want to work with homeless populations. I don't really want to work with like child services. And that's kind of what my image of social work was until I took the second to take a step back and be like, well, first of all, I can be a clinical social worker. So a therapist, or I can work with organizations. And so, yeah, I was in this like down and out time. I was like, well, I'm poor, I'm bored. What else am I going to do? So I went ahead and applied for Boston University School of Social Work and I began my journey there. So I am a social work student focusing on my path towards becoming a therapist. And what's really nice about social work, and I can talk about this more, um, it is first and foremost centered on social justice and social change. So it's this really wonderful dynamic where you can either work with communities or individuals through a social justice lens uh, and still support them as people. Uh, it's a good building point for me. and the ways that I've worked with college students up until then. Uh, I do a lot of immersion trips. So working with a group of students, taking them somewhere to learn about systemic oppression and uh, use my social work skills in order to create a community and help students disagree with each other and grow together and challenge one another. And at the same time, I also really thought about, well, what do I like thinking about and what do I like learning about? And I like thinking about sex, it's fun. So I actually decided to uh, begin the journey of becoming a sex therapist. So my, my coursework has included topics like systems of oppression and online dating. So how does something like racism pop up on an app like Grindr for gay men? I have done work on how queer and non-queer folks navigate sex differently. And then I'm currently in my social work placement, also at MIT actually, at their Center for Relationship and Sexual Behavior and Violence. It's called MIT Violence Prevention and Response. I specifically am working with the team that creates culture change around healthy relationships and healthy uh, sexuality. So that's been all a wonderful journey for me. Danny, just first of all, I love listening to you talk. Never apologize for, you know, sharing and, and going on about your story because it's so, it's such a like powerful story that you have. And I appreciate so much that you're sharing it here and in this space for, for us and for our listeners. I think that there's a lot in there that people will be able to relate to. And knowing you for, for as long as I have and seeing where you are now, it makes it makes perfect sense. And I'm not just saying that it really does. And I'm so happy for you. And I'm so excited to like, see what you do with this degree and um, going forward. I'm sure listeners will know this already just by listening to your introduction, but it's such a treat to have you here. And um, we're going to dive into some more questions and yeah, feel free to like sprinkle in all, all of the, all of the things because we, we just like love hearing it. So the next question that we have for you is what is your favorite thing about your profession? And so take this in whatever direction that you would like you've sort of shared on how you got to where you are. And so just, yeah, give us a little background, a little bit more. Yeah, I think my favorite part is the way that social justice and oppression and self-care in my career really are intertwined, right? So if I'm doing a workshop about, like tomorrow I'm doing a workshop on power and privilege. So we're looking at how do systems of power play out? What is racism? Where does power come from in our society? But it's also up to me 
to make sure that I remind the audience to take care of themselves, right? That no one has all the answers to these really complicated challenges and dynamics that our entire country is struggling with, right? We can't put the entire weight of being anti-oppressive and changing our systems of oppression on any one person's shoulders. But at the same time, we need to be able to stand up, right? We need to be able to activate to create social change. We need to have difficult conversations and we need to push each other. I think so often we find ourselves in conversations where we don't want to really be honest about our opinions or perspectives or our experiences with oppression because we don't want to offend someone, right? And I think we have to, we have to hold that balance of, um, I'm welcoming you into this space. I want you to be in this conversation. I want you to feel comfortable being vulnerable. And I'm also going to be vulnerable. And I'm also going to tell you where I'm coming from. And I expect that you respect that. And if you can't, that's okay. It means that we're not at a point where we can have this conversation, right? So it's um, this constant back and forth between pushing what some would call the social justice activist lens, but at the same time, remembering that we're people with hearts and souls and especially for people of color or queer people, we need to take a break too, right? Social justice is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And making sure that we remember that in our activism is really important. So I think throughout my career, that's something that I've really seen, right? That we can take students to Israel and take them to a museum like Yad Vashem, and then take them to a place like Bethlehem, which is a part of the Palestinian territories. Uh, we can talk to them about the importance of being pro-Palestinian and pro-Israel at the same time, right? Supporting these two different communities at the same time, but also making sure that we recognize that there's a lot of pain in there for a lot of people, right? And that we need to create a space where that pain and that frustration and that disagreement with our own communities and our own governments are also all coming up to the surface. So yeah, I think that that weaving of self-care and social justice is by far my favorite component not only of my career trajectory, but of the social work field in general. That's a beautiful um, way of putting it, like having those two things come together. Uh, I think now kind of on the flip side of that, what is probably the hardest thing about the work that you do or what is hard about it in general? Yeah, I think that there's simply a consistent lack of respect for the field. Uh, and I've seen that in a couple big places, especially over the past two or so years. One, this past summer during the racial justice reckoning, we started to hear folks refer to social workers as the response to defunding the police, right? And as someone who comes from a family with police officers and with members and military police, I have such a high respect for so many folks in those fields. And social workers can be a part of that. The social work field can be a part of that. And I think when those conversations began to manifest, I saw a lot of folks say things like, oh, send your social workers to deal with uh, this type of crime. Or how do you think a social worker will deal with a person on drugs with a gun being pointed at them? They won't be able to. Therefore, we need this type of policing in our communities. And of course, there's validity to the fact that social workers should not and cannot take the role of police officers or uh, folks in the military. And I think social workers can play a role in that, right? I think if someone is uh, struggling with suicidal ideation or uh, they have a mental uh, health challenge that has prompted the police to become involved in their lives. I think having a social worker come in and say, you know, I'm trained in this. Let me help deescalate the situation. Let me help respond and save this person's life rather than allowing them to harm anyone else and leading to a situation where they become harmed as well. So I think that has been an aspect of my journey. Uh, I've also had folks in my network, folks that I've really respected when I've told them, oh, I'm, I'm getting my master's in social work. They'll say things like, oh, that degree's great. It's such common sense. And it's like, well, it's not common sense, right? It's expertise. It's, it's decades of research and evidence-based practice and recognizing that I don't think any field in any country is really ready to tackle racism and no one's figured it out, right? So a field like this is at the forefront of that and we should respect that. And then finally, it's also navigating the low pay that social workers have, right? Social workers are kind of like public school teachers where 
Uh, I do not believe folks in the fields get paid the amount that they should. And therefore, of course, folks aren't going to flock to the field as a way to uh, either build their lives or keep a higher standard of living. Uh, until our systems pay social workers the amount that they should be paid, uh, I don't think that that level of respect will, will come naturally. And then also, of course, like battling the challenge of white saviorism and paternalism. In social work, most of my classes are predominantly white women, uh, many of whom are, they wanna do well and they wanna help, right? And oftentimes I'm that voice in the classroom that says, well, let's think about power in this circumstance, right? I had a colleague reach out to me and uh, she had a, a woman who was struggling with her husband who had a lower so, uh, sex drive than her. And we were talking about why people have different types of libido and what you can do about that. And I was like, I think there's an identity piece here too, right? What does it mean to be a man in a conservative region like Utah who is unable to please his wife, right? If he's not living up to that sexual standard, of course, it's going to create some tension and anxiety there. And that's okay. And that's normal. And that speaks to why we really need to be aware of how we address race in the field, race and gender and all those oppressions. Yeah, thank you. That really, I, I think helps us get a better perspective on really the field of social work in general. I know that it's something that I really admire and have thought about for myself. And I just appreciate hearing from you from your perspective of what the experience has been and the things that you're thinking about that are hard that hopefully you'll be a change maker in. I know you'll be a change maker in. Um, so we're going to shift the conversation a little bit, although I'd love to talk about you exclusively all day long. Um, truly, I would. I'm not I'm not joking at all. Um, but we do. So the podcast is Pod Save My 20s. And so we have a couple of questions here geared more towards our listeners and some advice for them for their 20s. So I want to ask this first question, which is what is one thing you think everyone in their 20s needs to hear right now? That life is hard. Life is so hard. I think we so often put this armor on ourselves at every age to pretend like everything's okay. And Oftentimes things will be okay, right? But oftentimes they're not, and that's okay too. And we can acknowledge that things are often okay for certain identities, right? And that things are less likely to be okay for other identities. Uh, there are extra hurdles there and challenges there from the systems that they were raised in. And no matter where your identity falls, life is still hard. <laughs> when I was becoming, when I was making the decision to become a social worker, I was on a student trip uh, to the Navajo Nation. We were in Albuquerque. And I think Tara can speak to the idea that whenever your students yell your name from somewhere far away on a trip, there's pure panic. It's like, oh my God, what's going on? And I like ran over and I was like, what's going on? And the student was like, oh, the, the person who we are visiting to learn about, it was a member of the Navajo Nation who identifies as Danae, who was inviting us to her family farm. And they were like, oh, she's a social worker. And the woman in her sixties was like, welcome. And I was like, wow, thank you. Whenever I've talked to anyone in the field and I've told them I'm beginning this journey, they always are so kind and just welcome me welcoming me in. And she says, because we know life is hard. And I think that that was so impactful for me. Yeah. So I had that experience with that woman who I think really introduced me to this idea that social workers who are working on the ground, who are therapists, who are working with the homeless or uh, working with folks experiencing homelessness or poverty or hunger, that they see that life is hard for so many types of people in so many places. And I think we can acknowledge that. I also had an experience when my life uh, was falling apart, right? Um, I was invited back to Michigan State to speak on a panel for alumni. And I did a quick round of all my favorite professors' offices. And I was talking to one person about how I had moved back to Boston. I was like, well, that's where I learned how to adult. And she goes, well, what does that mean to you? And I was like, oh my God, I'm back in class. And I panicked for a second. And then I was like, I think it's just keeping my head above water. And she goes, and it gets harder when you have kids. And I was like, wow, yeah. If this person who I so highly respect is giving me that knowledge, like that's something to hold on to. And I think those things have really, have really helped me see that your twenties and your life is going to be hard and it's okay because it's going to be messy and that's all right. And it might not feel all right, but it is. 
those moments when we, yeah, where we feel seen or someone says something that's just purely honest too. Cause a lot of the times you'll ask people oh, like, what's it like to have kids and like things like that. And they say, Oh, it's great. You know, it's the best time ever. And just <laughs> having them be honest for once and be like, Oh yeah, you're, you're going to have to tread water harder at that point, but it's still worth it. You know, it's still going to be okay, but it, it is going to be hard. And just seeing that and ha- being seen for what it is. Yeah. Um, we tread yeah. a lot of water in our twenties. And mm-hmm. I think that's a really good analogy for what it feels like to be in this season of life, even regardless of where on the spectrum you are in, you know, in your twenties, because there are people in all different stages of life in this season, I think it's still just a lot of treading water. And the thing is, we're not doing it alone. There's always people who are the helpers around us. I think that's important for, for us to remember and to remind ourselves. Yeah. I had a roommate once I was talking to her about uh, when things were rough and she goes, life is tough. And so are you. And I really like that because I think it, it did not invalidate the idea that life is tough. And it did not say like, you are tougher because it is hard, right? It is tough and that's okay. And you have to be tough too. I guess moving, kind of tying your practice or education back into our 20s a little bit, is, is there like a concept or a theory from your work as even just as a like a sex therapist and everything that apply, you feel applies heavily to the experience of being a 20-something specifically, or that there's something that you've learned in that practice that you've applied to your own life heavily? Yeah. I think building off of what Tara said a moment ago, it's all about social supports. It's all about who do you have around you, whether that's friends or family or mentors and having an open dialogue with them about a number of things. I think as a, as a gay man, the very limited and oppressive sexual education that we get in public schools it doesn't even speak to heterosexual sex, let alone queer types of sex. And being able to go to folks in my network and explain to them specific challenges around sex and for them to not only understand, but to validate that that's a normal aspect of queer sex is so invaluable. And I think that goes for nearly anything and everything. I really believe in mentorship. I think having folks who you can turn to to bounce ideas off of is really important. I had a question come up in one of my communities and it felt like a bit of an ethics question. And I actually reached out to two or three of my mentors and just asked, this is coming up. It's giving me red flags. Does it give you red flags? And having those conversations is just a space to bounce off each other and make sure that we are living up to our personal standards for ourselves and that we're living the ethical lives that we are and working to not harm others. So yeah, I would say relying on social supports is key. And especially in sex, right? Like folks don't realize that sex is much more about communication than actual physical activity and touching, right? I recently was working through a textbook of mine and it was speaking about how there was a couple and one of them had these interests in different types of kinks that they were nervous about their partner not being interested in. And one of the anxiety levels is that that partner will not want to do that thing with them. But what we often see is simply talking about something like a kink might actually serve the need, right? That might be actually all you need to feel that much more satisfied, or that might be the compromise that works between you and your partner. And relying on your partner as a teammate rather than an opponent who one of you will win and one of you will lose in terms of sex is really important to take away. I watched a video recently that said that we think about sex as a baseball game, right? There are bases that you want to go to. You want to hit a a homer, if you will. But we could think about sex like ordering pizza, right? A lot of people order pizza once, twice a week. Even if you know what your partner usually wants in their pizza, maybe that day they want something else. Usually they get pineapple, but today they just want bacon. (laughs) And being able to realize that maybe you'll get pizza from somewhere else that week. Maybe you'll go out to pizza together. Maybe you'll just get pizza on your own. Uh, But thinking about sex and pleasure through that lens can really help liberate that pressure of winning and of succeeding that I think we all adopt and consume from the patriarchal narratives around sex we live in, right? That it's all about how many times you have sex or how long you had sex rather than, did you have fun? Were you pleased? 
right? I think we're going to have to bring you back to talk more about this particular topic because it, I'm sure it sounds like you just have like a wealth of knowledge that I, I for sure am interested in hearing more about. Um, and I know Gabrielle is as well. And so hopefully our listeners will want to hear that too. But I'm like so fascinated by, by the work you're doing around this and, and the like way that you're thinking about sex and um, and how it affects like our overall well-being and and all kinds of things. So thank you for sharing that piece of it. Um, and like I said, we're, we're going to have to bring you back. I hope that we're doing a good enough job that you'll want to come back and talk to us again. So I'm going to ask another question here. Do you have any advice for someone in their 20s who is struggling with mental wellness right now? I think right now, especially, we need to realize that we're living in a pandemic. It's okay to not feel okay. It's okay to feel like there's impending doom around you because there is. And I think that's hard. That's hard to come to terms with. But I think beginning any type of recognition of your mental health right now must begin with that. I also from the beginning of this pandemic, found myself thinking a lot about my own clinical anxiety. And I used to describe it as it felt like a tiger was prowling around me and about to eat me, even though I knew there was no tiger anywhere. And it was just that constant feeling of impending doom. And I think it helps me because I immediately recognized that, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, folks were having that sensation for really the first time, right? Wow, I can't leave my apartment. I can't go to the grocery store without putting myself at risk for COVID-19. And my message for folks is that there are individuals who have had that feeling every day of their lives forever, mostly because of different reasons, right? It could be imbalances of neurotransmitters in your brain or experiences that you had growing up that have shaped the way you look at the world. But people have had that experience before and they figured out tools that are proven to be effective in addressing that. So for folks who are struggling right now and going back to what I mentioned earlier, I think rallying the wagons, right? Getting folks around you who really do bring you pleasure and joy and who are not stressful and letting go of those folks who are stressful at a time like this. I don't think anyone needs that stress. And maybe that means that you're letting them set sail for a little bit. And then maybe you'll reconnect after the pandemic when things are less stressful. Right. But really, really building up those social supports is key. Other than that, it's going to be really the annoying things that we all kind of know. Self-care is important, right? Recognizing that, you know, maybe I just need to take a bath tonight. Maybe I just need to uh, watch Netflix uh, in my bed for a day on a weekend and that's okay. And then I'm a big fan of exercise. And by that, I mean, I hate exercise. I don't like to do it. Uh, It's often really hard for me to get on the road. Uh, I'm a runner personally, and I have found myself being able to run six, seven, eight miles over this period of time. One, because it's basically all I had to do. Two, because it's cheap. Uh, And three, because when I'm done running, I feel amazing. And it's really just getting there and getting past that finish line and then allowing myself the, the ability to take a break after that, right? For my brain and the way it works, after I work out hard, I feel a little less guilty about taking that downtime, even though I know in my heart that I should not feel guilty about taking downtime. No one should feel guilty about taking downtime ever, but sometimes we do. And I think that's a result of the capitalism that we live within. Definitely. I just to like share a little bit of a personal perspective of kind of dealing with mental health during a pandemic, right? I already was working really hard on these things for myself before this pandemic started. And um, I've really struggled with being around people who act like everything is fine because it's just not. Um, And I found in particular in like working settings that to be really hard for me. And it's something that I've had to like actually start to name and say like, this is, this is hard and I need, I need this to be able to, to be, feel better and to function better and to feel supported. And so I think it's, you know, I, it depends on, I think what you're saying 
in terms of like the social, like creating that social support is so real and something we don't immediately think about when it comes to wellness. Um, but it, it really is a part of it. And we actually talked about this a few episodes back in our episode about friendships is we had looked at a, um, an article from Psychology Today talking about like how important friendships are to like your well-being. And um, I think that I have found during this time that those things, like those social supports are the things that have really helped me feel better when I'm not feeling so great. And so I think that's really good advice. And it's still a pandemic. It doesn't mean that you need to like be maybe in the same physical space as someone, but there are a lot of ways to get that social um, support. And I know I've spent a lot of time connecting with friends who are all over, um, all over the place that I probably wouldn't get to talk to as much as I have been because you know, now we just have the time, the time and space to do it. And so that's been something that I hope to take with me um, post pandemic is continuing those connections um, beyond that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's so true. What you said makes me think about how at the beginning of the pandemic, because I had done so much work putting in the tools to how to manage my own anxiety, when I was in my little Boston apartment, I would do these things ritualistically, right? Like every day off, I would do this and do that and do this and I would feel great. And then over the summer or now over the winter, when I've moved home back with my parents to be closer to them, I'm not really doing those things as much, right? I'm not reading my tarot cards like I used to, or I'm not soaking in the bathtub with podcasts, but instead I'm laughing with them, right? Or I'm joking with them or I'm eating with them. And I think that intuitively just shows that when we do have social supports, a lot of those other supports become a little less significant only because we're getting that support from somewhere else, right? I also just want to name that a couple months before the anxiety, I started on what are called SSRIs or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which is a medication for folks who are experiencing uh, depression or anxiety. And I could not imagine going through this experience without that. Personally, I'm on a very low dose. So my coping mechanisms are still tools that I utilize quite often. And of course, I still feel anxiety every once in a while. Very normal. And I think it's important that I name that for anyone listening who may also uh, go the medication route because it's a tool. It's helpful, right? And I think it's nothing to be ashamed of. No, definitely not. So thank you for sharing about that, Tara. Sorry, you wanted to- No, you're, you're good. I was just gonna, I was just gonna say, thank you for sharing that. I think something I think about all the time is how important it is to normalize like all those things, all of the tools, um, whether it's therapy or medication or, you know, physical like activity, you said running, like whether it's social things, like all of those things are tools and everyone should find the ones that work for them. I personally have been on SSRIs for like three years and just upped my dose because I was really struggling with the seasonal depression and the sun going down so early. Um, and to be honest, that's not going so well. The changing of my dose isn't, hasn't been great. And so, you know, I'm, it's a working relationship with my doctor and an ongoing conversation. And, you know, I hope that everyone feels like there's no, like there's, there's not a stigma around this anymore. I know there is, but like in this space, there isn't. And I'm really happy for you if that's what's going to help you. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I think the SSRI journey is, is very much that a journey. Uh, and I think it takes such vulnerability and strength. So thank you. Yeah, it really does. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to really collect my thoughts here because I have my own mental health journey that I want to share, but I think it might be something to share in a different episode just because it's very ongoing. I was on SSRIs for a while um, in college and then I had a relationship and they talked me out of taking them and went through that stigma and I just stopped cold turkey and then I had a very difficult withdrawal period and difficulty getting back into the momentums of life. Um, and that person ended up leaving me within that time period because of it at the same time. So it was a whole, it's it's been a journey. So I've been 
since then, like regulating and working on giving myself these tools outside of the SSRIs, not necessarily because I am against taking them. It's just I had stopped and then I have been moving and like haven't had the consistency or the ability in my space to have like a doctor or somebody to prescribe me those. Um, And I've had like just a different journey of struggling through that in a different way that maybe we can talk about more at a different time (laughs) instead of adding on to here. But um, thank you both just for sharing about that and yeah, working against these stigmas because taking medication, there's nothing wrong with it. And it's, that's a helpful tool exactly. And you should never like stigmatize somebody or look down on them for taking a medication that's helping them and helping them get through things that they need help with that maybe you don't yourself understand, you know, and it's one of those things with empathy and going back and forth between recognizing that, yeah, some people is going back, I guess, to the beginning of quarantine, like some people have these different experiences that they're going through where they were already feeling like it's doomsday a little bit, you know, and we all have different experiences and we should (laughs) be cognizant of those and cognizant of how different people's minds work differently and that's okay. But yeah, I think just kind of piggybacking off of that um, and like we talked about creating these social networks and real life social networks that we need to help support us in these times as anyone would, what are some ways that you recommend helping a friend who's really having a tough time right now and how to be a good receptive listener in those conversations while also kind of, yeah, towing that line of, you know, when it's going to be hard for you and, you know, kind of going that back and forth, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think it's an interesting dynamic that we have to play with, right? Because any well-intentioned person who makes themselves available, that's only 50% of the, the conversation, right? And I think this question really begins with what does that person look for from you? You can offer yourself as a support and as a friend or a listening ear, and they could say, no, thanks. I'm not in that place right now. Right. And I think first and foremost, it's respecting that, right. It's empowering them to make the decision in terms of what they need to be the strongest. I think there are definitely times and experiences and folks who are just real low right? And that maybe they might not feel like they have the activation energy to text you back or to call you back, but they may want to, right? And I think that comes down to a conversation of how can I be there for you? What do you, what do you need from me? Would you like me to just kind of come sit next to you and not talk to you, but just kind of work in the same space as you? Uh, Does it mean that we sit and not talk and watch TV? Does it mean that we go on a walk and talk about the Real Housewives? I think there's a lot of different colors that support can be. And determining what color is best for a peer that you care about or a person you care about really just comes from communication and that conversation of, well, what brings you joy? What gives you energy? But also validating that it can be hard to get out of bed for some people. I've been fortunate that I've been able to get out of bed more days than I have not. Most days I'm able to get up and I think that's a privilege that I have and a power that I have. And I would never want to shame a peer who maybe struggling with that, right? And you can find a way to support someone without shaming. So being very thoughtful about your word choice, right? Meeting them where they're at, learning what do they like? Are there candies? Are there foods? Is there takeout that they like? Can you provide those things without without leading them to either feel guilty or feeling like you are trying to get something out of it, right? You want to get the recognition of being a good friend rather than just be a good friend, right? All of this is to say, I think it's just that open line of communication, finding out what that peer needs from you and wants from you. And if you feel like that wall is just too tall, that they're not in a place to let you in, I would say check out the other folks in their lives, right? Not necessarily tell them, hey, this person's going through this thing, uh, but maybe checking in with someone who you know might be closer to them, or if you know a family member in a very comfortable way, Uh, someone who you know won't react in a way that might be detrimental to the situation, but just saying, hey, I haven't really talked to this person. Have you talked to them recently? Oh, how's this person doing? That can that can help you feel more comfortable that they have the supports that they need and maybe they just don't need it from you specifically. And that's okay. I think they do a lot of work in social work school of teaching therapists that it's okay if your clients don't want to work with you or don't like you. Uh, And I think in this type of conversation that can become important and helpful as well. 
Danny, this has been amazing. Um, we're we're getting to the end here, and I just want to leave a little bit of space. If there's anything else you want to share, any like social media you want to promote, any like anything at all, fun facts, like whatever you want to share, just in this last bit. Um, and then we'll close out the conversation. So when Tara first sent me this question, my immediate reaction was, I'm single. <laughs> um, but all of that being said, uh, I don't think I have anything large to share. Uh, thank you for giving me this space and this opportunity. I think for folks in some parts of my family, when they're like, wow, he moved to the big city and he's on a podcast, like that's so unheard of for them. And I think it is a way that we can amplify voices of color and queer voices and amplify these discussions of removing the stigma around medication. And I'm so excited to be a part of that social change effort that you all are leading. And I'm very proud that the two of you are strong, independent women leading this podcast with no man because you don't need no man. Thanks, Danny. Um, we were excited to bring a male voice into the conversation. But yeah, it's it's really exciting to be a female-led production and get to work together in this way. And we've talked a lot about our identities and like what in the podcast before and the perspective that we're coming from and being aware of that and also really wanting to like be inclusive of other identities. And, you know, you bring so much to the table. So thank you so much for that. And with that, I think we'll close it out. Gabrielle, is there anything else that you want to say? Yeah, I guess I just want to thank you, Danny, so much. This has been a wonderful conversation and I've loved hearing your story thus far. I definitely would, we would love to have you back. I would love to hear more about your experience learning about like sex positive culture and its intersections with queer identity and oppression and racial identity and everything. And that's just something I'm very interested in. And I think that would, our listeners would really benefit from, and I'd love to hear you talk more about it. So I would, we would definitely love to have you back, but yeah, thank you. That's just all. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> it's been wonderful. All right. Thanks everyone for tuning in this week. And thank you again, Danny. This was such a great conversation. And like we said, it'll be an ongoing series talking about mental health and all different kinds of things related to this topic. And hopefully Danny will join us again. And yeah. Do we want to have Danny do the honors of saying stay hydrated? <laughs> sure. We say that at the end of every episode, Danny, would you like to have the honors? Yes, I'd love to. I say this with a whole lot of empty water bottles all around me. <laughs> Stay hydrated. Make good choices. Don't be racist. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.